it, it started out even more absurd than it is right now. And I think we just tried to balance it as much as possible with getting notes about grounding the characters from the studio. And then when we were in the edit, that's where the final like, okay, I love this joke, but it makes us like now we're in a farce. Like this is like not, we're, you know, we're not grounded anymore. So we got to get back down to our version of reality. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, an outlandish scheme to experience sex before they graduate makes two queer high school students start a fight club in director Emma Seligman's comedy, Bottoms. The film tells the story of best friends PJ and Josie, two gay teens who take the unusual approach of launching a high school fight club in a plan to meet girls and lose their virginity. But soon they find themselves in over their heads when the most popular students begin to beat each other up. In addition to Bottoms, Seligman's other directorial credit is the feature film Shiva Baby, which earned her a DGA Award nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in First Time Feature Film in 2022. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Seligman spoke with director Gene Stepnitsky about filming Bottoms. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. How great was that, huh? Amazing. Congratulations. Amazing movie. Amazing movie. Thank you. And so rare these days, an original, R-rated, non-IP comedy. I mean, these things are, they're unicorns. It's, it makes me very happy that anytime one of these has success, because they will make more of them, because they're becoming rarer and rarer. Um, let's just start at the beginning. What was the genesis of that? I'm sure you're probably kind of sick of talking about this at this time, but I'm just going to ask anyway. What is the genesis? What was the genesis of the project? Um, I met Rachel Sennett when we made our first movie together, um, and uh, I just Shiva thought, Baby, Shiva great, Baby. another great movie. Um, thank you. Um, and at the time, she was doing a lot of stand-up in New York, and so was Io Debri, and we all went to university together. And um, I just thought she was so funny, and and like I've never met anyone like her. And she was also so ambitious and um, such a good writer. And so I just pitched her the one comedy idea I had, which was all I wanted was just like teen sex comedy, but queer girls, and like I, somehow there's like a superhero element or like fighting or something. But I didn't know what it was, and and then we just started from there. Like it really just came from me wanting to work with her and her mind and and her sense of humor um, so much. That's where it started. Right. And then, so I feel like tone is, is one of the director's main jobs, if maybe not the main job of a director. And this movie does such a good job of playing with being playful with tone and but controlling it as well. I mean, what was it like for you? Were you like in the edit and just like, what, how do I figure this out? Cause I, I'm always like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Totally. I, yes, I think tone is always like the hardest, no matter what you're doing, um, especially for comedy. And I'm sure like you've felt this way, like on everything you've done, like you, 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 you're like, how absurd, like which joke pushes this above, you know, the limits of this world? Um, you know, how much should we care about the characters before it starts to become like a drama, you know? 
yeah, I mean, I stress about tone more than anything. Um, and I've never heard it put so well before, but it is the, I think the main job of the director, you're like the only one that's like, no, this is starting to feel totally like off. Um, but yeah, we, it, it started out even more absurd than it is right now. And I think we just tried to balance it as much as possible with getting notes about grounding the characters from the studio. And then when we were in the edit, that's where the final like, okay, I love this joke, but it makes us like now we're in a farce. You know what I mean? Like yeah. now we're in like Wet Hot American Summer and like this is like not, we're, you know, we're not grounded anymore. So we got to get back down to our version of reality. Yeah. Do, um, what was the hardest thing to cut in the movie? There were a lot of jokes that stayed in there, but are in the background. So there, maybe this wasn't the hardest joke, but in terms of tone, in the first classroom scene, one of the football players is um, getting a, a blowjob from a cheerleader. Um, and uh, there used to be like a few establishing shots of the class, and that was one of them. Um, and it just, that was one where I remember our editor was like, I feel like this is just taking us to an 11 and, and we're still trying to get to know these characters at this point. Like we're still trying to understand this world. Like let's not jump around too much. So that was one of them. Also the mascot has a giant penis and, um, there were a lot more shots where he was featured more. And so we kind of had to just get rid of those because everyone at test screenings, people were like, what's going on with that? And we were like, it's funny. <laughs> I, I didn't notice the, the mascot's penis until this screening. Um, by the way, at the first screening, uh, in the theater, when Marshawn Lynch said, uh, men need therapy, two different women near me, not together, just both said yes simultaneously. <laughs> um, yeah, like it, it's funny just in tone, uh, tone as it pertains to comedy. Uh, I don't remember if it was Elaine May or Mike Nichols, but one of them said something called the expensive joke where the joke will get a laugh in a theater with a test audience or whatever, but it takes you kind of too far away from the, the kind of where you want to be tonally with the movie. And those are always, I find the hardest to cut because they, people love them. They laugh, but it does do something. It does change the movie in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's a version of Marshawn's monologue where he's yelling at the girls in the gym that was far longer and because he improvised so much. And I was like, this is so funny. This is gold. But we were, you know, we just witnessed, we're, we're kind of at the climax of the movie and we're about to watch, you know, our, our two main characters get into a big fight and, and, you know, express all these feelings that they're having. And, and ultimately like it took us out of the movie. That was an example of that for us, at least like, it was just like, let's give Marshawn Lynch the longest improv, you know, cut together of, of, of the, you know, this monologue. Um, but we had to get rid of it in order to get us back on page. He's so amazing in the movie. And I was so jealous that you kind of found him and, and put it, he's, he's, his hit rate is so high. Everything he says is hilarious. He's, he's perfect. Um, can you talk a little bit about the world building in the movie? Cause I was kind of, when I was watching it tonight, I was like, this is like Dune. We're in like a different, this really is, it has its own rules. It has, um, uh, you know, even, even like what year it is, it's not totally clear. And, uh, you know, no, not a cell phone in sight. Everyone just having fun. And, but also, you know, I was looking at the cars. So I couldn't quite tell. And I love that it was this, this nether world of we're not it's it's 2023 and it's not 2020 it's an alternate universe um can you just talk about the rules of the world and how you kind of came up with them totally um i appreciate you saying that uh i you know i had to calibrate i think a lot of references and inspirations that 
were getting me very excited about the movie, but I think also we're kind of splitting off my brain into a million zones because I really wanted the movie to feel nostalgic and put these queer characters in time periods and, and decades of teen movies that we haven't gotten to exist in positively. Um, and I was thinking about these stereotypes and these archetypes were playing with like the jock and the cheerleader and when they started in post-war America and like, you know, with movies that take place in the fifties, like Greece or or in the sixties, like American graffiti or Crybaby, And, um, so I sort of wanted to just ground myself at least in that time, you know, inspirationally, um, and then work up my way through every other decade. And so that was a lot at first. Cause I sort of just like handed all these references over to my production designer, Nate Jones and costume designer, Eunice Jerry Lee. And they sort of had to take all of that and work with me to make it cohesive, um, and then my DP was like shooting an action movie. So we kept on joking that like she was shooting Scott Pilgrim, but like in a John Hughes world or something. Um, so I think it just took a lot of conversations and, um, a really wonderful, you know, team of designers that, uh, you know, understood the level of humor that we wanted also particularly in like uh, the design and, and took a lot of what was written into the script and made it on, you know, put it on posters, et cetera, but then went even further with it with their own ideas, um, which was fun and like always something that you can, you just hope for that, like your department heads, like take your tone and you're like, and then take it to another level. And you're like, ah, yes, like that's exactly what we want. Um, so you, you still get all the credit regardless. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel lucky that they were on the same page and, um, you know, that there wasn't, there wasn't any level of like, I don't know, having to be like, this is not our world. I did keep saying that like to our script supervisor, she was like, does this make sense? And I'd be like, it doesn't matter. And then she'd be like, I love that. That's great for me. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, um, the, the, you know, it was mostly about sort of pulling from different time periods and, and trying to sort of ground us in whatever our world was. Yeah. Um, your, your first movie, I think the budget was like 200,000 and this movie, the budget was like 50 times more than that. Uh, not huge at all, but also much more. Can you talk about working when you go up to a studio movie? Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of positives about that, but there's also a lot of challenges. Like there's a target on your back now and there are more cooks in the kitchen and everyone has an opinion. And can you just talk about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's night and day, you know, um, I think that Every everything was new and different in in that I got to expand my creativity and, and my imagination and, and had more support and more money. Um, but um, also there's there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen. Um, but I, I feel so lucky with I've heard horror stories, you know what I mean? And I feel quite lucky that with the creative people we were working with at the studio at Orion who are trying to make cool stuff for women and queer people and people of color, like that they weren't like, you know, micromanaging. They, 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 they were in the kitchen, but they, but they had good notes and they also gave me freedom. Um, so I feel like, I had it pretty good for, for what I have heard it can be like for when you're making that switch. And also I think sometimes when you're making that switch, people don't trust that you can handle a movie of this size. And even though they've given you the opportunity, they're like, yeah, but you don't really know. You know what I mean? Like you're not really, you haven't done a movie this size before. And I didn't feel any of that. So 
yeah. I mean, every day it was like 4,000 challenges because I didn't know how anything worked when you're doing an indie. There's just literally certain people who you don't understand. Like when you get to the studio level, you don't understand what their job is. You know, you're like, what's that? And they're like, it's an old union rule or whatever. Like we need to I don't know, <laughs> have this person here and they're great. Um, but I'm like, why can't I wear the actors? Where's base camp? Like why? Like I, I, every day I was just like, I was probably being a little too honest, but I was like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and, and thankfully everyone was very nice and would be like, Oh, um, sure. Okay. Yeah. So you've never worked at the base camp before. Okay. So that just means that, um, they're in the works. And I was like, I don't know what that means either. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, you just like, it kind of feels like you're in like a, I don't know. You're in your own comedy. Cause you're like, this is, I don't know. You, you people need to explain everything to you. Yeah, no, I, I get it. You, you have the courage to say, I don't, I keep it to myself and you actually ask for help. I think there's something to be said for that too. There's probably a level in between. I kept on being like, I don't know. And people were like, okay, but you're the director. Um, so I feel like I could learn more from that. Um, I, this cast is amazing. I, I can't, I'm trying to think of the last comedy I saw where it just if came, you're like, this is the launch of so many new comedic actors. And I was reading, someone called it like, uh, it felt like St. Elmo's Fire. We just have all these new actors, uh, brought out, uh, to the world. Um, can you talk a little bit about just this phenomenal cast and, and you've, you cast people that hadn't acted before and, and a lot of new faces and people you've worked with. Definitely. I mean, that's such a nice compliment, whoever wrote that, um, because that's that's how it started to feel when we were on set, because so many of our cast members either haven't done comedy or they haven't really broken out yet. And I was like, what if this is that movie? You know what I mean? <laughs> where where everyone can can go off from here. Um, uh, I don't know, in terms of some of our cast members, some of some were already well known in their own regard. But um, we worked with an incredible casting director, um, Laura Rosenthal and, and Mary Beth Fox. And uh, I, I'd never really seen casting as an art before. Um, I think we had our own fun ideas. We wanted like kind of camp John Waters casting and that we were like, let's get like an influencer and let's get like a football player and let's get like, we, we wanted to pull people from different worlds and create sort of a concoction of confusing choices of people coming together in, in a way to help with the absurdity. Um, but I think that they helped us, our casting directors, understand that each actor needed to come with their own uniqueness and singularity and to complete this world, this cast of characters. Like it wouldn't have worked to just cast someone who like fit the role well or, you know, could is a good actor and, and or could read the lines or, you know, even was just super, super funny. Like it needed to they need to stand out in a way. And so. I mean, Aya, we always had in mind because we went to school together, um, Rachel and I with her. Um, and then we were thinking about Kaya Gerber and then she sent in a tape sort of completely unprompted before we even started casting. Somehow she got a hold of the script. And I think what we found with her and with Havana Rose Lou and Ruby Cruz and Miles and Nick was that we were really gravitating toward actors who took the characters seriously because we felt like they were playing it straight and understood the bit and understood that they needed to be committed to believing the ridiculous things that their characters are thinking and saying. Um, and they just like all, it sounds so cheesy, but they all wowed us like in the auditions and it was pretty hard to say no you know, to, to, and, and, and every time we saw each of them, Miles, Savannah, all of them, we were like, who is that? Like, it was like a really fun discovery each time. Um, and so we got really lucky that, you know, it all worked out, but yeah. Um, I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to open it up, uh, to the audience, but, um, 
uh, Harold Ramis used to always say, uh, you know, the script is the worst we can do. And so get the script as good as it can be. And then once you get that, you know, improvise. Um, how was, how was it from the script phase to production, uh, in terms of sticking close to the written word to, you know, going totally off? Um, I think that I wanted to actually stay closer to the written word only because I had gotten advice from different comedy directors. I should have called you, um, but uh, who'd worked with improv before and I have never done that. So I was just getting advice and everyone sort of in their own way told me to kind of be conscious and clear and, and intentional with the improv that I get and don't just be like, all right, let's go crazy, you know, um, and so I think that I actually went in being like, we're going to get the script, we're going to get the scene as written, and then we'll have fun with this part or that part. But Io and Rachel are such amazing improvisers, particularly like Io, that's her way of finding the scene and, and, and getting into it with her character. I'm pretty sure she improvises, she improvises quite a lot on the bear, ad-libs at least, um, and so um, it, it took a life of its own with the improv. And I actually feel like I had to totally step out of the comfort zone where I was like looking at my sides and I was like, this is not what we wrote. Like every time I was by the monitor, I was like, this is getting crazy. This scene is out of control. Like, I don't know what's happening anymore. But but I had to sort of like trust that Rachel and I, they're incredible writers as well, knew where the scene was going. Um, so it was, it was very challenging to, to say like, I have the confidence to like, still know where this scene is going. Um, it, it was, it was hard. Yeah. And also hard in the edit. Cause you're just like, I don't even know what the scene is anymore. Um, but, but it was uh, like a fun challenge and I'm glad that, that they pushed me there. Cool. Um, all right. Do you guys have any, uh, any questions for Emma? If, I have more if you don't. So. Uh, the question was, uh, your treatment of adults was Snoopy-like, and was that in the conceit, or is that something you found uh, later on? I think it always started that way, just because high school students are so caught up in their own world and the lives of their friends and their crushes, um, and they're so shallow and selfish that um, the second you start to bring in an adult character you're thinking about how do we ground them and you know, well, what's there, especially in a movie as absurd as this, like suddenly if there's adults operating in this world where the rules are so crazy, you start to, it starts to stretch. I think at least while we were writing it, it started to stretch sort of the limitations of what people can get away with and what people think is okay uh, within this town. Um, so the, we never, we never really had, you know, too many adult characters um, uh, in the movie. Um, so I think, I think it kind of just stayed that way. Um, yeah. Have you heard from David Fincher? Do you know if he's seen the movie? I haven't. No. I bet, I bet he loved it. I bet he loved it. Um, so your DP, Maria, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name. Rushi. Rushi. Uh, you worked with her on Shiva Baby and this was kind of a big st step up for both of you on this one. Um, what were, how did you guys kind of discuss, um, the look of the movie? What were some of your references in films that you, you've, you mentioned a few of them already, but what, what were you guys thinking about uh, visually? Um, I think, you know, we always spend like a few weeks before prep officially starts just showing each other, showing each other clips from movies that we've watched on our own and going to like time codes and discussing why I like, want to use this shot or something from here. Um, and I think we went through 
a Scott Pilgrim, um, kick ass, um, was a big one. Cause that's just such like a gritty and cinematic, like, but also like horny, bloody teen sex superhero movie. Um, uh, what else? Um, bring it on was a big one. Zoolander. She kept on bringing in references that I didn't ever appreciate as a kid were like very cinematic and, and very good when it came to blocking. She's so practical. And she was like, look at how they do ensemble blocking and bring it on. And, um, you know, like how the characters are, are staged and the depth and everything. So, I mean, that was interesting. I didn't want to rewatch fight club because I didn't want to just start copying it, but she did bring it in toward the end, um, and looked at just a few things we could pull from, um, so that was one. And also World's End, because I mean, Edgar Wright is just a huge influence in general for me. But um, I think that movie in particular, because it's an ensemble action comedy and the the kind of style of of fighting in that movie is funny, but also cool um, and, and allows for like really fun camera movement. Um, so those those were some it was like a mix of like you know, like really ridiculous comedies like Zoolander and Anchorman and stuff and, and sort of, and then like bring it on and fight club. Yeah. So you talked about, there's, you know, a lot of imp improvisation. And then when you got to the edit, you're like, okay, what, how do we make this all match and make sense? And so what, what happened when you first saw that for, I mean, the experience of seeing a, an assembly is, is just the worst. It's always the worst day in the movie and then you kind of pick yourself back up and, and you get back into it and it slowly gets better and better and better. But, um, how was it when you got in there, there was an, you know, an editor's assembly and is this the first time you worked with this editor? No, she edited uh, Shiva baby as well. Okay. So there's Park. a shorthand there. Yes. Yeah. But, and he, but even so there's still, you know, it's a, you figure out the movie together, you know, they see the movie one way, you see the movie another way. What happened when you, when you saw the, the movie the first time and then how did you get it to where it ended up? Um, I, I think, I mean, when you're, when you're watching the assembly, you're so tired from the movie. So I'm trying to remember sort of what I felt like watching it. But I think, I think the main thing I felt was, okay, like this is the movie, you know, and, and the cut of the movie has not changed in terms of like the structure of it that much from her original assembly. But, um, I think the main thing I felt like, okay, we got to figure this out is that for me, when I was working with the actors and the designers and Maria and all this stuff so much changed or, or intensified in terms of my intention, you know, in, from script to screen, uh, in terms of like, what is this character actually feeling? Or like, how can we get her to say this line? Like, what do you need in order to do that? And for Aya or whoever. And so, you know, Hannah didn't know any of those steps. She was just going off of the script. And I think that I had a big moment where I was like, we never talked about sort of the intention behind each scene. Like it can read as joke, 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 but it, it, it there, we had to begin a process of actually kind of breaking down each scene in terms of character intentions. And it started to feel like a drama at some point because I just wanted to communicate, well, that character is paying attention to this character and that's what's going on under like the subtext basically. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of like reconstructing to get it back to kind of where it was. But for me to feel confident that like, okay, I think that it's clear these characters are feeling this way underneath the jokes, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. Um, 
you know, I, I love the music in, in Shiva baby. And now you had a, a music budget that you could really choose needle drops. Um, how much of it were you uh, imagining beforehand? How much did you find in post? And w did you write anything in or were, did, did you find out you can't get the rights to the song that you want as often? It's always heartbreaking for that. Uh, and you know, how did you, it's a great soundtrack. Thank you. Um, we had two songs written into it um, that we found out, or at least one of them we found out we could clear before. It was Complicated um, by Avril Lavigne and uh, Pain by King Princess um, in the montage, or both montages. Um, so those we'd written in. And then the other ones, um, you know, we we didn't know uh, yeah they kind of came later and and sort of we weren't sure sort of that that like you know sequence at jeff's house you know uh with the egging and the bomb or whatever we didn't know was going to become sort of the montage kind of like music kind of sequence that it became uh once we were shooting and when we were in the edit and then sort of we sort of figured out what could be the best song there and that's definitely where the the biggest chunk of change went um but uh, for total eclipse but it was worth it um it, it was worth it <laughs> thank you um but yeah i mean yeah there's there's also so many times songs i think i get more attached to songs in the temp score like hannah dropped in quite a few songs like pj was like <sighs> listening to like a song in her car and it was like if she put just dropped in bad day <sighs> um and and then i was like oh my god this is perfect and they're like yeah we're not gonna license that for five seconds um you know so that's when i actually got more attached to stuff i know the ed editors drop in like 40 million dollars worth of music they and, do. Like, and you get attached and you fall in love and then it's just ripped away you find yourself begging for more money and yeah, yes, it exactly. always ends in a heartbreak. Yes. Um, all right. I think that's a heartbreak is a good uh, place to end. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.